0: When you look at technology today, you can be scared, depressed, excited, and impatient all at once. That's how Paul Ford feels. Paul is the CEO of Postlight, as well as a writer and frequent contributor to publications such as Wired and the New York Times. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Paul dives into what he loves about the tech industry, as well as what scares him. And he discusses building his company, the culture within it, and the exciting projects they've worked on for everyone from Vice to the Players' Tribune to the Obama Foundation. Enjoy this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.
1: Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I am mean, Faison Chief, content officer here at mission.org. And on the other line, in the city so nice they named it twice. Paul, how's it going?
2: It's good. It's good. I'm trying to think big visionary thoughts.
1: Yeah, big visionary. I like that. We're going to be talking about some visionary thoughts. And we're going to get into your background, which you have worked on a ton of really cool digital properties and also maybe some stint in the White House, maybe some other fun stuff. We'll get into all that. But first, how did you get into technology?
2: Um, From birth, roughly. I had a (laughs) a nerdy father and I grew up. Fun fact, I grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which was the home base of Commodore Computer, who made the Commodore 64 and the Amiga. And so it was in the bloodstream. The schools were filled with computers, just like people who grew up in California and had apples everywhere. Um, The only difference being that Commodore went out of business in, in the 90s and Apple exploded and took over the world. But... Uh, always machines. And then I went to college and the web happened. I thought this is the best thing that could have ever occurred to me because now I can publish my weird zines online. And uh, from there, I built a career.
1: I love that. Uh, you know, we get more guests that worked on the Commodore than you would be surprised to know about, that, I'm sure. Um, it's know, a pretty. You know
2: why? It just, it was really cheap. It sold everywhere. And so parents would just kind of be like, I need to, I need to make a smarter child, and they'd get one at JCPenney. Um, <laughs> they sold mil- it was until like the Raspberry Pi, it was the most common or it was the best selling single brand computer ever. They just millions of them.
1: So, flash forward to Postlight. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on and, and what you've been building as CEO of Postlight.
2: Sure. PostLite is a four-year-old digital product studio, meaning we're an agency that builds software, platforms, APIs, products uh, for mobile and web. I am the co-founder. My co-founder, Richard Ziade, had an agency previously called Arc90, which did lots of sort of big platform-level work, and especially doing that in New York City in the early and mid-2000s was actually unusual. Uh, So we got to know each other, and bonded over our, our shared love of API-driven platforms, which is a great way to build a friendship. And he sold Arc90, did some other things, and then one, one day he called me up and said, you know, you're good at media and outreach. You, you understand and, and have done this stuff, have done a lot of consulting. I know how to make an agency work and operate. Uh, let's join forces. And so we did. Uh, that was about four years ago. And we started with a base of media work, because that was especially my background, and then really sought to diversify. So now we have a, a firm that is edging on around 60 people. Most of our work is spread across the media, NGOs, and finance, um, clients like Vice Media, the Obama Foundation, and Goldman Sachs. So uh, the pretty wide variety, building sort of platform, API-driven experiences, and apps on top of them.
1: Can I tell you that I absolutely love the Players Tribune UX and UI? I don't know if you built the whole thing, but it's phenomenal.
2: We did a lot of that work with them and uh, they were a great client. They came to us and they said, we need to reboot. And there's a a lot of interesting stuff under the hood for the Players Tribune, right? Because they're about getting athletes to publish their own thoughts in their own voice and uh, with a lot of funding from Derek Jeter, Kobe Bryant. So it's a real like unusual media property. And that means they have an unusual relationship with their authors, like very different. Their authors are brands and global businesses, as well as human beings with intimate experiences about their lives that they want to, they want to share in a respectful environment. Right. So, so we got to work with them, not only on getting that, platform relaunched and making it sort of elegant, but underneath there are a lot of tools that help manage the relationship with the athlete as a creative individual. Uh, and it's almost like a, a CRM. It's almost like a, like a mini sales force for athlete relationships and landing them as, as writers and, and sort of giving them the information that they want back. So they were a great client. We were, they came along at a, uh, a really opportune moment for us and, and we were very proud of that work
1: it's secretly as a as someone who you know is the co-founder of a media company player's tribune is secretly one of my all-time favorite ideas for a media company and i think it's just so brilliantly done and i think the design is brilliant i think the access that athletes want is clearly they want the mentorship from athletes who have already done it and all of that. I just, I just love it. I think it's just really smart. I think it's going to be around for a long, long time.
2: You know, good ideas are scary too. Like the rest of the media industry saw that and went, well, no, 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 You can't do that. Yep. You need to have mediation. My take is always that the, the reader, if they know what the ground rules are, then they can engage on their own terms. Like people understand that this is not mediated by a journalist, that it it, it does have elements of self-promotion because it's somebody talking about themselves in their own life. But the the readers still want to hear. They still want to know in the athlete's own words what their life is like. And so it really works, but it boy, does it scare everybody else, right?
1: Yeah. You also have been a writer and a commentator for a bunch of places like Wired, New York Times, You wrote a piece that I think is absolutely fascinating and it's something, a lot of the things that I believe and we believe here at Mission, um, and you said, why I still love tech in defense of a difficult industry. And I I thought that it was really poignant and it's something that I think a lot of our guests and our listeners truly love technology and use technology for good. And I think a lot of times the knee-jerk reaction from the broader media at times can feel pretty accusatory and tech absolutely has a huge amount of problems, but I think that we're going in the right direction and there's parts that are going, you know, in, in the wrong direction for sure. But I, I want to know why you wrote that and, uh, and, and why you feel so passionate about technology.
2: Well, you know, Wired came to me and, and they said, you know, you, you are a person who could sort of sit between these worlds as a technologist, as, a, as an experienced writer, and, you know, where, where are you right now? And I, they really left the door open. I think if I'd wanted to write a piece that was, here are the 10 things that I'm most excited about in the future of technology, they would have been happy to receive it. But when I turned in this piece, which was, you know, a little melancholy, a little sad, because all of the utopian optimism of the you know 15 20 years ago feels like it's been replaced by a a pretty rough reality and yet here I still am in this industry and it's it's not just to you know to make a salary like if you took away post tomorrow I would still open up a web browser and and a text editor and start building things for you know for modern platforms like that it is what I still love and so what I was trying to do was resolve those two aspects in, of my sort of internal state and just find a way to be calm and discuss them. And it, what was interesting is I got feedback from people in the piece. And, and really, I didn't want to make too much of an argument about the way things should go. I just sort of wanted to talk about what had happened and, and point out that technology foundationally has changed from the bright young newcomer to something enormous in the same way that like electricity is enormous or or travel is an or, you know, cars are enormous. And I got feedback from very bright people that I really respect. One letter I remember was from someone who said, you did a good job, but you missed the really big future. Like if you, you, if you believe in this at all, you do believe that we're still headed somewhere good and meaningful as a species, that we can unlock things and that we can, we can face these problems honestly. And then on the other side, I had a a beloved friend sort of take me aside and say, why didn't you go after the platforms? Why didn't you call Facebook and Google and Apple to account for the amount of power that they have? And it was interesting because, you know, as criticisms go, I, I basically agreed with both of them. I was like, you know, maybe I was a little too melancholy because there's a part of me that really does believe that human ingenuity with better and better tools can solve a lot of problems. And I have a lot of faith in that. I do get depressed because the, the, we're not doing enough of it, but, but I remain hopeful. And then on the flip side, the platforms are up for a lot of discussion and a lot of criticism, but I feel that we focus too much on the individuals who control them and not enough on the fact that some of the weird ethical fallout and disasters that are occurring are really a side effect of things scaling so quickly that you know, ethics don't really scale in the same way that you know horizontally Designed web services do. And we're struggling with that almost at a species level, not just the cultural level. It's, it's, it's a new thing for billions of people and it's hard to metabolize. It's hard to figure it out.
1: Well, and I think that, I think you nailed it in the dichotomy between those two people because there is nuance here and there is not a lot of patience for nuance in kind of outrage culture and i think that that's the big thing is with the 24-hour news cycle it's not about nuance it's not about building the case for both sides that can be a little right for all the shots that people want to take at google it's like anyone in the world can find anything now way easier than they than they could have are we saying that that's a bad thing you know at at the other side of that like there's a lot of you know deep privacy issues there. It doesn't mean that it's like you know a black or white issue. It just means that there's a ton of nuance that goes into this. For all the people that that talk about Facebook and a lot of the problems that they have, and they do, it's also connected like half of the world. You gotta kind of like you know, and same thing with Twitter is like for all the outrage that goes on on Twitter, it also like is where stuff happens every day. I just think that. It's a lot easier to write the hit piece about, you know, a CEO than it is to just, you know, have nuance. And I think that your article kind of nailed that,
2: right? Look, all I can say, thank you. That's very kind. All I can say is that those things exist, right? Twitter exists, Facebook exists, Google exists. And what are we going to do about it? I mean, they're going to continue to exist as giant publicly traded corporations, first of all, we all know what giant publicly traded corporations are and what their motives are. Like they have a certain structure and and a set of motivations that might not be in alignment with the rest of the world. Okay. I mean, that's real. It's fine for the press and the media to call everybody to account. I think what's tricky is that the press and the media just often doesn't understand what the hell's going on under the hood. And they focus on individuals and whether they're likable or not, or creepy or not, or if they seem to be human or not. Like there's a fantasy that Mark Zuckerberg is a is a kind of robot. And it's like, he obviously isn't. Whether he makes decisions that you find ethical or not is a different kind of thing. And then you have to sort of work backwards. What, what's tricky is that then you have to figure out what are his ethics? What do they look like? Are they real? Are they, is there an ethics there? Or is, or, you know, what, where are they coming from? And then you can start to unpuzzle it. What's tricky too for people here is that the media always has a fantasy of sort of having more power than it does. We're getting to a scale where the way that you're going to address challenges from the platform companies where they are damaging civic society is going to come at like a regulatory level. And you're starting to see Congress get involved and you're seeing, you know, Elizabeth Warren running for president saying she wants to break up big tech tech companies. Again, it's like, I don't even necessarily have a strong opinion. I'm just sort of like, the world will decide what it wants to decide with whether I have a strong opinion or not. Agreed. Um, yeah. But you're seeing the structure and the scale at which these arguments are starting to happen. What I do think is good is for political leaders to engage with technology and to have opinions that other people can talk about with them, as opposed to just the platforms running wild and politicians talking about the internet being a series of tubes. Like, but this maturing process is very, very challenging. It's hard. Yeah
1: it's a really, it's a really hard, you know, and the internet might be a 30 year old who kind of knows, you know, its way, but social media is still, what are we, uh, a teenager, right? What is social? Yeah. I mean, you figure Facebook like really took off, you know, you could say whatever it is in like 2000, like 2009, maybe or something like that, 2010. But yeah, I, I just think that it's a gangly teenager that like flails and it knocks over a bunch of stuff I I love your way of of saying that of kind of like whatever I, I decide like, it's going to do what it's going to do. And I would just argue for the people that have these like, you know, massive lash outs that like, you know, it's the, uh, you know, never attribute to malice that which adequately explained by stupidity. Right. When you look at what happened with like Apple and emojis, for example, Mm -hmm. do you think that like they were being malicious? Like, no, they were just making emojis of like what they looked like and the people around them. It was just kind of dumb and I don't think that, you know, we've interviewed a ton of people across all of our shows uh, at Mission that are people like generally every day waking up and trying to do good things for the world and when you talk to all of the individual parts, like they're trying to do a good job at work and they're trying to make the world a better place in which, you know, they can do that. And I think that a lot of times it's a lot easier to lash out to the big company name But when you talk to the actual people, it's like, yeah, you know, we screwed up like that. That was a mistake. Did we know that we were going to screw up in a magnitude of billions? Like, no, but, (laughs) you know, we screwed up.
2: Well, this is what's tricky, right, though, because you're right. You meet these people who have tremendous power and authority and they they run big parts of the platform. You you talk to them as as part of your day to day. And I, I talk to them sometimes when we're working on projects. And there is an element. They're they're basically sweet, well-intentioned people who like technology and want to build things. And yet, at the same time, I also sometimes want to grab them by the shoulders and be like, no, you you did it. (laughs) Like, you built the giant world government scale thing. And don't all shucks me anymore. Don't be like, well, how? Who could have ever predicted? Because. Like you wanted the power, you did, and you got it. And now, unfortunately, you gotta take full responsibility. And so it's tricky that way. So then, and then everybody focuses on the individuals as opposed to the platform. It's just hard, it's hard to have this conversation. People are coming, you've got a sort of California ideology where it's like, well, we're just making progress. How could you ever think anything bad about us? And then you have like a media ideology, which is those individuals are evil and they're out to destroy the world. And it just is very, it is a challenging time to be in this industry and be between those worlds because really, you know, all I want to do is like hack some Python scripts and, you know, (laughs) like to me, the most relaxing thing I could do would be just to kind of little, take a little CEO break and go work on some web spidering projects. You know, it's just like, that's, that's the part of it that I still love and connect to. And I almost feel like Oh my God! More morals, more ethics, but you can't—you can't turn your head. It's real now. We're, we're part of the world.
1: Well, let's do our own pivot here, and let's let's pivot to uh to talking about that stuff—the fun stuff. I think everyone should check out your piece. We'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, I thought it was a, a well done, you know, ode to technology. And ultimately, like what we do on this show is like we talk about how cool technology is and how human beings are the ones who are building the future and you know it takes visionary IT and technology leaders to do that. So let's talk about some of the projects that you've done that you're super proud of over the course of your career. Some of those uh some of those things that you've hacked together and kind of how you you view those things. So tell us a little bit about, you know, another one of the projects that that you feel like shows what Postlight has done and how you thought about it.
2: Oh my goodness, there's a lot. I mean, we're young, but we've had uh, the opportunity to work on some really interesting things. There's a few on the media side that are wonderful, like most of Vice's traffic, so Vice Media, hundreds of millions of readers. They have a custom platform underneath all of that content that we built with them. And uh, we love partnering, and that part's very exciting. One of the great things about having an agency in New York City is that it becomes a meeting place, and so you have a giant institutional bank, or you have a completely crunchy lefty not-for-profit and a brand new media company, sort of all come through, sometimes come to the same parties. We did a replatforming for the Audubon Society and sort of their signature bird app, which I love because it just, it has all the different sounds that birds make in it. And you, if you see a bird, you can sort of walk through a decision tree and and figure out which bird that is. So a lot of work like that, we're... uh, some finance tools I can't tell you about, some interesting labs projects. The the thing that I love is that, and this makes this a little bit unusual, is that instead of somebody coming to us and saying, make us a site or help us market and communicate, they're coming to us at the platform level and they're saying, I need an an API that connects to five other things and then I need to build products on top of it. That is very, very satisfying work. Anything where we're talking to a, a deep data system, and then trying to create a good experience on top of it, probably the best example there that I would give is that at one point we partnered with Bloomberg, and you know we're little and Bloomberg is big, and uh, <laughs> we used their APIs and their financial information, which is you know, quite good, if you ever find yourself in need of financial information, give, give Bloomberg a try, and made it so that you look at any web page online or as opposed to offline web pages, but if you look at any webpage and it will, it'll dress it up with links. It'll figure out what companies and what entities are mentioned on the page and then show you Bloomberg data to the right. And that was a, you know, just a Chrome plugin, but boy, was it satisfying. It was just yeah. fun to see that data come into the light. So anything like that, where we can, where we can bring something hidden, or something a little bit, you know, rough around the edges and smooth it out and make it usable for humans is deeply satisfying.
1: That's really cool. Isn't it kind of mind blowing how those little, you know, necessarily smaller projects can have such a massive impact now? Um, especially it's just crazy.
2: It's great. I have, my co-founder is a very, very good product thinker, rich. And he did a thing, one of, the, one of the things that we're most proud of lately, or that I am most proud of, one of the things I love the most that we've done, it's just called tinysheet.com.
1: What is it, tinysheet?
2: Yep, tiny sheet, like, uh, like spreadsheet. And yeah. it is a 10-row spreadsheet. And it's very easy to share the URL to the spreadsheet. It just updates the URL as you go. It saves nothing on the server. And it's, you see it and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay. And now I use it constantly because of all the times that I need to share like project pricing information inside of the firm or I'm estimating a cost or just trying to figure, you know, like tip calculator kind of stuff. The number of times you want like a five-line spreadsheet turns out to be huge. And we use it all the time. And that, that's, that's so a fun. baby. That's like a couple weeks of work. But but it's so much fun. That's the stuff I we live for.
1: That's really cool. We'll link that up too. And you, it seems like you've done a lot of kind of things like that, you know, for companies like Slack or Airtable or things like that. I, I like how you call them playful experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that stuff do for your team? You know, like we have a lot of, you know, CIOs and CTOs and folks like that that kind of want to develop those type of little experiments that do things like, you know, citizen development or hackathons and try to engage employees to create a, try to create, you know, small, impactful apps or things like that. What is, what's some of your best practices of how to have your team work on these fun things and, and how to make them get it done, you know, get from concept to, uh, to launch?
2: Absolutely. I mean, look, the first thing, like anything is, is leadership. We had, uh, we put a person in charge of labs and then What we did is we created a structure whereby it was possible for anyone in the firm to pitch a project, but proof of concept needed to be less than two weeks. You had to be able to get something real into the light in two weeks. Then we lessened the cost of failure. If it didn't work, you could write a a post about it. If you were a designer and you didn't know quite what you wanted to build, you could do some design work and write about that and promote it. If you and, you know, or if you were an engineer, you just had to hack it just enough that it was believable. And then we could decide what was going to come next. So I will say, frankly, that like the what, what product ideas tend to come from leadership and, and product people, whereas engineering folks might more likely come up with what I would call like solutions, like interfaces. We, one of the ones I love the most comes straight out of our engineering group. It was a complete surprise to me when it showed up. It was, it's called Glide and it's a, there's a query language called GraphQL that is very easy to work with for developers or just simpler. And somebody wrote a GraphQL interface to Salesforce. And really all that's happening is engineers because Salesforce runs the world in 2019, uh, engineers at Postlight said, ah. Oh, and I,
1: sponsor this podcast.
2: Good, good job. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's who you wanna have sponsor this podcast, right? Salesforce has a number of interesting edge cases in how you might talk to it as an API. Yeah. And by creating a simpler layer so that you can talk to it in a very, very consistent way, Postlight ends up having this wonderful open source tool that lowers the cost of setting up and interacting with Salesforce, especially when it's part of a larger platform. Like, very often, You know, I I can't tell you how often people come to us and say, I need to do something around content, which might mean WordPress or or you know, maybe an Adobe CMS or or a couple other things that you might stand up for them. And then it also needs to integrate with sure analytics or sure this or sure that. But Salesforce is increasingly kind of the the engine that tracks and, and monitors how people are moving through a funnel. And so a framework like that, like letting engineers sort of surface those ideas and letting them play. But it's like anything, it's accountability, it's monitoring. And there's also, I think, a sense of publicity. We're going to do an event and we're going to talk about the great work that's happened. We're going to select 12 products that people have created as part of their labs experiments. And we're going to talk about them and promote them to hundreds of people. And that's very motivating.
1: That is really motivating. And I also want to highlight one of my favorite things that you've built, which is a lorem ipsum generator based mm. off of any content on the web. This is like brilliant. I freaking love this. This is hilarious. And what you one of the examples that you did was you created a lorem, uh, lorem ipsum generator based off of the Fire Festival pitch deck, mm-hmm. uh, which is it's it's hilarious. We'll link it up in the show notes. But you can do it with anything, and like, what a fun creative idea! You see some of these over the years, the lorem ipsum things that are that are super funny. Who created this? Why'd you do it? Uh, what was the reason for it?
2: So this came out of a couple different people in the firm. It was um, just someone came up with a funny idea, which was, what if the fire festival pitch deck was a used for lorem ipsum placeholder text? And then look, I mean, this is a. This is a product firm. People think in an abstract way. And so the next step is what if we could generate any possible random text from any source? And then someone else said, well, you know, let's figure out how to make a, a Netlify deploy <laughs> and let people run some command lines so that they can have their own Lorem epsom generator for their own project. So team effort and... Look, I mean, I I think people come up with ridiculous ideas all the time. You want to have a culture that instead of laughing about it says, yeah, why not? And I think that, you know, that's something that we're probably very proud of, right? Like that a ridiculous idea here doesn't die on the vine just because it's ridiculous. But if it's something that can be pulled off and it's going to make everybody laugh, then it's worth doing and you'll learn something you'll get some skill and we'll have a chance to, it's hard to talk about technology too. Like, you know, people are, are hammered over and over with various messages about platforms and products and, and services. And so just to be able to say, here's something you have never seen before. And, you know, wink and nod. We also will help you integrate with Salesforce via GraphQL. But if you need ridiculous Lurum Ipsum generators, we got you covered too it gives you a chance to have a conversation with people. And so it's good for marketing. It's good for outreach and it's good for culture.
1: A a clip of that is, uh, I love this rewards programs, events hosted or monthly other unique statements, openings and you will concerts, art continue to parties, dinners, earn points, rewards, attend cocktail and receive private events, top tier treatments, specialty gyms. Gosh, this is great stuff. Uh,
2: Why, why, who wouldn't want to click on that? (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's so good. Um, so then how do you how do you maintain the balance of business results versus like fun side projects? Because I think those two things potentially could be at odds or maybe maybe they're not.
2: Well, the the hardest part of a business like this is well, I mean, maybe I would say this because I'm CEO. Sales, of course, is always very, very hard. Because you have to you have to get people in and it takes time. But the true challenge is always staffing. I mean, we've been very fortunate in that we tend to have more work than we can handle. And then we're balancing and hiring and recruiting and trying to create a very level firm. And um, for quite a while, as we were starting, we were very close to 100% utilization. But you got to give people a, some time to play and think. And so when you look at consulting firms, they you know there's always some time built in to do something that isn't just pure client work. You know, we we started to build in more and more time and more flexibility. At first, it was, you know, this person's between projects. They have two weeks. They're on the bench. And we hate the idea of the bench because it's just, you know, people tend to kind of look at Reddit and think thoughts and kind of drift. And nobody's here necessarily to do that. We have a good vacation policy, like they should go either spend time relaxing or they should be doing things and sort of building their craft. We also focused a lot on professional development and, and sort of at the start of the firm, made sure that people had dev- uh, money to go to conferences and, and sort of buy books and, and learn things. And so it became very organic. It was just sort of like, okay, there's going to be some time, time between projects. We know that everybody in the firm should be working on at least touching a lab project every year. And, you know, in an ideal state, we'll have a couple weeks for every individual in the company to participate. And either pick up something that's been around for a while and do some work on it or do something completely new and uh, work across engineering and design and, and product. And so we're getting there. We're very, very close to that. It's just the job of staffing to make sure that that time is built in and that people are, have some time with projects and, and that they can or they're between things. And, and it is a, it's a juggling match, but it's, it's motivating and the results are, are very fun. And it's it's worth doing. How do you look for talent? There's a few things. This is where I come in handy. Uh, I'm a good broadcaster in that I you know I tweet a lot and I talk a lot and I go to conferences. So to always always say we're hiring. We get a tremendous amount of inbound recruiting and also inbound clients uh, from client leads from our own podcast, which is called Track Changes, and then a real focus on HR. Our first hire was HR and you know, culture the the strongest indicator for me is uh, when people recommend their friends to come work here. And then an unbelievable amount of interviewing and relatively few hires and an acceptance of slow growth, you know, of medium, medium scale growth, because uh, in this industry, talent is always just a serious gating mechanism.
1: What's the craziest thing that someone has brought to you for a project?
2: I don't know. I think my boundaries are, are very, very, I don't, I couldn't tell you anything that would qualify as crazy. Like I think, you know, fire Ipsum is fun. You'd have to test me as long as it's safe for work. I am, I'm going to be interested in what, what you're doing.
1: That's pretty good. So that's maybe it's a, um, one of our listeners out there will have to figure out a project that their team wants built. That's, that's crazy enough to raise the eyebrows. uh, Exactly.
2: Exactly. No, I mean, very, I've been doing the web for a long time. Very little would surprise me.
1: So let's go into a nerdly direction here. Uh, What are you excited about with technology? What are some of the things you're scared about? What are you, uh, what are the things that, uh, that you're working on right now that you can't wait to share?
2: Well, look. I'll tell you. Let's go scared first, and then we'll we'll talk about the the fun stuff, right? It is scary to me that there are, that the giant platforms, just by the scale of themselves, they sort of set all the rules for what we can do. You know, your Apple Terms of Service is is de facto the law when it comes to technology, right? Because if you don't meet those Apple Terms of Service, you're never going to get. Uh, or, you know, for the App Store, you're never going to get your app in the App Store. So I always worry about, and it could be regulation causing it, it could be commercial pressures, it could be competition, about the giant platforms kind of taking oxygen away. You, know, you, you still can't see an Instagram preview in a tweet, which isn't like that should be solved by now. And maybe they just need to send new diplomats.
1: Um, yeah, for real, I mean that's wild I, stuff like that absolutely like YouTube is the worst kid in the sandbox. youtube yeah. like nothing, nothing as ever good when you want to share something from youtube It's crazy
2: right, and so that's that's bad that's bad for people who want to build things, and that's bad for competition on the flip side, those very same companies are creating cloud platforms that are so supremely wonderful and easy to use and the ability to look it's always tricky right because there was the point where you could make a web page and or 20 or set up a cms and you were a good technologist and you were getting good work done that's over like you have to know how to, to to really thrive in this industry you need to understand apps and components and and all kinds of frameworks and and that's just a real thing however at the same time and that's because the web is real. the web in particular, but also just tech in general and the internet in general has transitioned from, you know, document delivery to application delivery. And so you're living in this application delivery world, except that things are starting to catch up. The development environments are good. JavaScript is a, is a messy language, but the tools and the documentation around it are, are increasingly excellent. And there are sort of other just promising things happening. Like you can stand up a, you know, a little container with an API and start creating your data model and suddenly you have a working application and or you could use a Google app. You know, I'm thinking there's a API framework called Hasura, H-A-S-U-R-A, which is very new in the world, but boy, it, you almost don't need a programming language anymore. You can just define your database schema and then suddenly you have all of the API you need um, on the flip side, there are things like Google's cloud platform and, and Firebase where you could bootstrap the back end of a mobile app in, you know, minutes or days. And, and so those things from the same giant platform company are just fantastic. And it's getting back to that point where you can prototype and experiment and do something new and novel in the course of a couple of days. And, you know, it, it might not scale to tens of millions of people but it'll scale, it'll work. And then on the other side, on the web platform side, things just get, right now we're getting to the zone where it's either the the sort of WebKit, Chrome, Safari World, or Firefox. But the reality is the platform is so good. And there's a uh, increasingly, there's a technology called WebAssembly that lives inside of the browser that is allowing people to compile software that normally would only run on desktop and bring it into the web browser. And so that means that experiences are opening up like, you know, machine learning inside of the browser and fast 3D rendering and, and things like that. So the platform overall, the web platform, the mobile web platform, the cloud platforms are getting so good and so smart and so easy to start up it's hard to find a competitive advantage because there's millions and millions of people in the field, all playing with the same toys, but for problem solving, it's pretty great. It's pretty exciting.
1: Let's get into some lightning round questions. These questions are fast and easy, okay. just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps to learn more about building apps on the world's number one CRM. Fast and easy questions, Paul, are you ready? I'm ready. What's your favorite vacation spot?
2: It's a little bit obvious, but we love going to Asbury Park in New Jersey because I have small children and it's easy to get to from New York City.
1: What is your favorite chat bot that you've chatted with?
2: I've always loved Hubot. I don't know that one. Oh, uh, often in Slack supported by GitHub. Good for, you know, image searches, documentation, things like that.
1: Favorite book or podcast you've enjoyed recently?
2: This is very on brand. I usually am either reading, you know, trash sci-fi or good literature. It is called The Oxford Handbook of Mega Project Management. And... Anyone who finds themselves in the position of running software projects should read it because it will make you feel good about yourself. It's all about things that cost a billion dollars or more in how you manage them. And you realize that you don't have problems. You know, Boston has problems.
1: What do you do for fun?
2: Oh, is that an option? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a company and seven-year-old twins. If you gave me a couple hours back in my life, they would be spent reading, hacking around, and riding a bicycle.
1: What is your best advice for a first-time CEO?
2: You're going to find your limits, and you shouldn't pretend that you can get past them. You have to work with them.
1: What question do you never get asked that I didn't ask you today? Do you wish you were asked more often?
2: What's interesting?
1: What is interesting?
2: What's happening in the open source microprocessor space.
1: Any, anything, uh, anything you want to share? What's your, uh, what's your log line for what's, uh, what's happening in the microprocessor space?
2: It's just, we might be entering a world eventually that isn't just ARM or Intel. There is so much happening at the low hardware level that it's just, you can feel the energy coming off of it in a way that the energy came off of the web in the early days or blockchain. There's just so much going on with low power, small new devices, and as people explore the things they do. my. Favorite site to look through is called Crowd Supply, where Ooh. there are these sort of, it's, it's like a Kickstarter style thing, but it's for electronics. And it's always some new technology I've never heard of. Like there's a button you can press and the, the a signal, which is a very simple one, like a, like a beep, an invisible beep, a, a radio beep, will travel over a mile so you could have, you could control your light switch from a mile away. And I, I didn't know you could do that.
1: Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, We, we just had, um, we just had an episode where we're talking about LIDAR and like same sort of stuff where you're like, goodness gracious, that what's being worked on in LIDAR is like unbelievable.
2: Well, and you know what the world having been around for a while, right? Like the world of LiDAR is the size of the web in like 2002, right? Like it's, it's not, yep. it's, it's, it's huge. We're just in an unbelievably huge industry these days. And then there's LiDAR, which is probably thousands and thousands of people who are really, really in the LiDAR. And when, you know, aside from subscribing to the LiDAR newsletter, you'd never know a thing that's happening until every five years, some technology ends up in your phone.
1: Yep. Paul, this has been absolutely awesome. Uh, any, any stuff to plug? Uh, everybody should absolutely check out PostLite, especially if you need some really cool stuff worked on. A- a- anything else?
2: Obviously, this is the, the best podcast to listen to, the one that you're listening to right now. <laughs> but if you have time in your heart and your life for another podcast, check out Track Changes, which is myself and my co-founder every week trying to figure out what in the world is happening to this industry.
1: Uh, You beat me to it. I was going to say everyone should check out Paul on Twitter at F train. He's great. And you should check out track changes. So you beat me to it, but uh, yeah, highly recommend.
2: And you know what? Salesforce don't turn away. It is everywhere and you better know it.
1: Hey, I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Paul. You're, you're the man. Appreciate it.
2: I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.